This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We're kicking off Season 6, if you can believe that. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, the pleasure is all mine. Always good to see you, especially in this futuristic era of 2020. Yeah, Happy New Year. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we put a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview or a column commentary. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. Illinois has just legalized marijuana. It's become the 11th state in the nation to do that. We're also going to be talking about the assassination of Soleimani and the events that are unfolding in Iran and Iraq right now. And then finally, we're adding a new segment this season. We're going to be looking at the seven sacraments of the church, taking one each episode and kind of talking about them. And today we'll be talking about the sacrament of baptism. But before we get into all of that, Dan, how was your holiday? How was your Christmas? How was your New Year? David, it was great, but short. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you and I are both, we were just talking about this before we went on air here, that we are both back into the regular rhythm of an academic semester, and yeah. oh, it's busy. But um, it was good. I spent a week with my family in upstate New York, including one of my favorite things to do, which is be around my family, go up. My parents have a little, what in New York State they call a camp, but I think the rest of the country would call like a cabin or a cottage or something, a little place up in the Adirondacks. A and getaway. A, a little getaway. It's where they spend the weekend and it's near a lake in the summertime, that kind of thing. And it's very cold and snowy, um, but it's it's 
yeah, there's something very nice about that, just kind of getting away, especially when we live in the busy, busy city as we, you and I do here in Chicago. And so, yeah, I was home for Christmas and uh, celebrated some of the Christmas liturgies at my home parish. That was interesting. Folks who follow us on social media may have seen me tweet or post about one of the Christmas Eve liturgies I had, which was in my high school alma mater gym. It's a my high school is across the street from a parish that is now joined to my home parish. So it's, you know, one pastor, two parishes sort of thing. And they have so many people at Christmas and this tiny little church can't hold it that they have two simultaneous 4 p.m. Christmas Eve masses. Last year I had the one in the church. This year I was asked by the pastor if I would take the one in the in the school. I don't think I've ever celebrated Eucharist in a high school gym. Like I've never been a kind of high school chaplain or anything like that. Let alone it, just the kind of weirdness of being there at my own high school gym. I was thinking like 20 years ago, geez, I would have been in gym class or something here. So it was very interesting, and I saw a lot of familiar faces. It was, it was good to be back. Then I came back to Chicago briefly and was spent some wonderful time with the family Dalt. That yeah. was a highlight for me the last couple of weeks. You came to dinner, and then you blessed our house. It, and and it, was, it, was, it was great. Yeah. I, I met your in-laws. They're delightful, <laughs> and, and your kids were so helpful with, you know— kind of altar serving there being being acolytes with uh the holy water and everything it was yeah it was it was wonderful so thank you and uh for the wonderful dinner and as always you know shout out to the delightful family dalt well i have to say my in-laws my wife's parents who've just moved to chicago they are not catholic they are very very protestant but they very much enjoyed being a part of that and they told me afterwards how delightful they thought that you were how much they enjoyed the conversation at dinner and how much they enjoyed being included in that house blessing. So thank you again oh, for doing yeah, that. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, they're wonderful. So that was really nice. And then I spent New Year's with friends on the West Coast. And uh, yeah, like you, I came back hitting the ground running with one stop at Reno, Nevada. And we've talked about this in the last couple of years. It's it's become a, a somewhat annual tradition that um, the diocese of, well, they it is definitely as a 37-year-old tradition for them. But for me, for the last four years, I've had the great honor, the privilege of being invited to speak at this diocesan Catholic conference. And it's always unique. Listeners may hear that there's kind of a stuffiness in my voice. And I attribute that in part to the fact that this conference takes place in a casino, which is sounds weird to basically everywhere outside of Nevada. Nevada, I pronounce that incorrectly all the time. It's because in Nevada, all the hotels are also casinos. And so it's very much like the scene from Sister Act, you know, where they're running through these, you know, nuns and habits and you hear the, the slot machines clinging and everything. So it's it's really bizarre, but there's also a lot of smoke in oh, that space. Oh, because the casinos, people can smoke in the casinos. They can smoke in the casinos. And, oh. and that always, by day two, you know, you don't notice it quite at first because they have that filtering technology. But by day two, you, you do notice it. And I feel it. And I think it's kind of messed up my, my sinuses a bit. But it's worth it. So shout out to all of my friends there in, in Reno. Uh, they, they really are wonderful and it's it's always a great experience. And I saw some some other colleagues too who were speaking there, and that's great to catch up. David, that summarizes my experience. What have you been up to, my friend? So I, I don't have anything nearly as exciting. So for the first time, I'll really, be the judge of that. Well, <laughs> for the first time you know, in nearly, I guess, the entirety of my marriage, and maybe even before that, we had a Christmas where I didn't travel because, as I mentioned, the in-laws have moved here. We no longer had an eight-hour drive out to Pittsburgh and an eight-hour drive back from Pittsburgh. 
we were able to have our Christmas centered in our home and to really begin to develop some rhythms around the home. And you coming and blessing the house was part of that. We just enjoyed the city, but we also enjoyed sleep and having unstructured days. And it gave me a chance to catch up on a lot of work, which sounds counterintuitive, but as always happens, the semester doesn't afford a lot of time to get bigger projects done. And so I worked on a book proposal. I worked a bit on rebuilding some of the studio here and uh, got some equipment repaired. And have I really enjoy that stuff. And so that was all good for me. And I'm excited about this book proposal. It's a, it's a project that Franciscan Media asked me to pitch to them. And it's less theological and more personal and more kind of spiritual memoir. And We'll see what they ha- what they will do with the proposal that I sent them. It's very raw, and it, it speaks some truths about my past that may be uncomfortable to read for them, and it was uncomfortable for me to write, but not in a, not in a horrible way, more kind of like an Anne Lamott, I'm just going to let it out there kind of way. And we'll see what they do with it. And I have no idea where this is going to go, and I'm excited to get back into teaching. I'm going to be teaching Ignatian spirituality this semester, and that'll be a, a new subject matter that I know but I have not really gotten a chance to dive into deeply, and I'm, I'm enjoying that. The Lasallian charism with the Christian brothers was something that was very influential on me when I taught down in Memphis, and I, I'm very excited to be getting more into the Ignatian traditions as well. So, And of course, I enjoy always talking to you about the Franciscan traditions. Well, I just want to say, too, I, I'm excited. This is—I'm uh, hearing live for the first time about this, this new book project, and— uh, those of us who have read your monthly columns in St. Anthony Messenger magazine, I certainly can speak for myself, and I know many others, are really grateful for the kind of honesty and directness and vulnerability you bring to it, but also with with insight that's uh, applicable broadly. So I think, I don't know, I think there's there's a lot of potential there. Uh, Franciscan Media, who's been one of my publishers of the years, you'd be foolish not to publish this guy. <laughs> so well, do it. And they're, I mean, they were the ones who, who suggested it because they saw a possibility of expanding that kind of voice that's there in the columns. And so we'll see. I mean, I, it's a new set of territories for me, like I said, and, and I, I'm still experimenting with it. So we'll see where it goes. But you know, that's yet to come. But right now we've got some topics in front of us. So why don't we take a moment and uh, step away for a break and we'll be back with the Francis Effect. Welcome back to the Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and current events and through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Marijuana. Let's talk about it. It's currently legal for recreational use in a number of states, including, and here we go in alphabetical order, Alaska, California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, Nevada, sorry, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, and the other Washington, that is the District of Columbia. On January 1st, Illinois became the 11th state to legalize recreational marijuana. Several states are expected to vote on uh, recreational marijuana use measures in 2020, while others are preparing similar legislation. Now, this opens a whole host of issues, including around those who have been incarcerated for marijuana possession and use in the past, predominantly African-Americans, and those who stand now to profit from its legalization, predominantly white males. David, what are your thoughts? I have a lot of thoughts, and I will say... I first had a public conversation about this on Things Not Seen with my friend, the Reverend Al Sharp, who is head of an organization called Clergy for a New Drug Policy. And he's been working in all of the states that you mentioned to help to pass model legislation to help to legalize or at the very least decriminalize drug usage. 
And when he and I got into that conversation, I guess it was now about three years ago, I had some very strong feelings and my feelings were negative because I am not not pro not pro decriminalization, not pro legalization. And part of that is because I'm the child of a poly addicted alcoholic and drug abusing family. And I have seen the effects of marijuana as a gateway drug. And I have seen up close what that has done to my friends. And so I have a I think I am much more conservative on this than a lot of people who kind of have my political bents. I, you know, I see the the unrestricted or the less restricted use of marijuana, not as a good thing for society, but as a but as a a harm. That being said, that conversation with Reverend Sharp did start me thinking in some different directions because I got started thinking about the disparities in incarceration, the disparities in prosecution, the disparities in the way that we have applied the law and the injustices around that. And I saw, I'm beginning to see it in a much more complex way than the simply, it's bad, we should outlaw it kind of approach. I'm now seeing it more as, I still think that the substance and the use of the substance itself is bad. I don't see it as a positive for society, but I also see that there's a lot of pieces that need to be attended to that follow from that. So the rhetorical question is, do I agree with David Dalt? <laughs> and the answer is, in that great German neologism, yein. Yes and no. I'm 100% on the same page with you and, and Reverend Sharp about the disproportionate effects and consequences and how drug laws in particular have uh, dis- further disenfranchised historically minoritized populations like African-Americans and the poor, frankly, more broadly, who don't have the resources that, let's say, you know, a a wealthy white suburban high school or college student who might have a much more serious, you know, controlled substance on them like cocaine, for instance, would have in terms of getting out of the consequences and so forth. So I am unmitigatingly in support of decriminalization of marijuana and for its legalization. I am also, and where I depart from you is, I don't really agree with you and, and others. You're not the only one, of course. It's, I think there's a, a minority at this point. I think when we look at the polling in terms of society and, and social kind of engagement with these questions, and we see that with you know, states that are not necessarily California, New York, the standard kind of bastions and poster children of so-called progressive laws and policies. The first state to legalize the use of marijuana for recreational purposes was Colorado, a a deeply purple state. So I think it's worth noting that in in a very heavy gun state, for instance. I think the public view is shifting, and I don't think that is enough to justify whether something is good for society or for individuals or communities or bad. But I happen to agree with and have long agreed with the shift. Part of it is, is simply this. I don't know enough to contest the language of gateway drug, though that is a a common phrase. Frankly, it strikes me as it's more about addicts than it is about substance. And so alcohol can be a a gateway drug. You know, there are other forms of abusing substances and products and, and activities that can lead to further detrimental sort of substance abuses and and patterns of behavior. I think there's also some kind of, from my perspective, some sort of intuitive reasons why I think it it doesn't make sense for us, for instance, to have regulated, legalized alcohol consumption and sales and possession and use in this country and not something like marijuana where tobacco is also, I I think they're comparable categories, frankly. Part of it is simply this. 
it's a naturally occurring substance. You know, there is no artificial, there's no distilling process or brewing. You know, all you have to do is, is find, come upon these plants and dry them out. You know, it's more complicated than that, but, but not much more complicated. And so, I mean, there's that kind of very superficial, that's not itself, again, enough to justify it. But I think it's absurd for us to say that alcohol, which is the, the, a greater cause of, you know, addiction, violence, including physical violence, abuse, assault, you know, the operation of machinery like cars and, and manslaughter and other forms of violence, and, and so on and so on and so on, that my feeling is for those who might hold a perspective like half of your perspective is, I would push back and say, well, then I guess you might think that the prohibition movement of the 20s was justified as well. And maybe that's Maybe that's an intellectually consistent argument I, that I don't agree with, I don't like, I might, I might say, and didn't work, by the way. But I would say, like, f folks who have that kind of argument that it's not good for society and so forth and so on would have to also prohibit alcohol. So I'm curious about your thought so, on that. So much there, and yeah. thank, thank you for, for digging into that. So let's say, first of all, I'm not in favor of the rabid consumption of alcohol either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> for the record. For the, for, for the record. <laughs> that being said, uh, I recognize that alcohol is much more freely available. Tobacco is much more freely available. Tobacco kills a lot of people. Alcohol, both directly and indirectly, kills a good number of people. So I, I take those points. I will say that we have some societal checks. Like we, we have a language for talking about when someone is addicted to alcohol. And we have some mechanisms, both chemical and social, to help support people who are trying to come out of addiction to alcohol. So we have a little bit of a better societal support structure for naming and dealing with that kind of addiction. I come from, you know, the I grew up in the 1970s, was a teenager in the 80s, and was a college student in the 90s. And so what do I hear? Well, I hear the rhetoric right now that, that pot is not addictive and you can't get addicted to it. And yeah, that, that's, that's not true. It's not, it's not true. But yeah. that's, that's still largely the rhetoric, oh, this is safe, and like you said, it's herbal, it's natural, and so it's, it's good for you. And so there's a sense, I mean, let's put it in brownies, let's put it, it'll, and right now the, the, the CBD movement that says, well, this will help you with your arthritis. This will help you with your anxiety. This will help you with PTSD. We're having a great number of claims being made about this substance and the substances in well, I think marijuana. We need to, Go ahead. But we also yeah. need to qualify. Yes, plural there is key. CBD and THC are two very different things. Fair enough. So CBD derived, and so is hemp, frankly, when you talk about the... the it's all sin, Father. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> and no. I don't remember any of the manuals of the 19th century talking about that in the confessional. No, I mean, I, I, some of what you're saying makes sense, and some of it, frankly, is unfounded. I'll okay. be honest with you. I mean, CBD is... It is, there is a craze going around akin to kale in my book. CBD is one of the derivatives from marijuana. It is not psychoactive. That's THC. And CBD and hemp, which comes from the material of the plant itself, are not necessarily, you know, they can be, can be derived from the marijuana plants that aren't active with THC crystals, you know, in terms of its, its flowering and so forth. I think going back, so there's a parallel, there's a connection here with the criminality question, and and I think this needs to be taken very seriously. You're right, but you're you're mischaracterizing in my eyes. Aside, you're taking an extreme side about oh, it's herbal, it's safe for you, it's good for you. I, I've not made that claim, and I don't think anybody else is. And in my comparison to something like tobacco or alcohol, I think is is very apt here, which is to say, you know, in moderation, all of these things are potentially fine. 
I'm not a fan of, of smoking cigarettes. I do not like tobacco. I don't like cigars. Can you become addicted to cigars? Yes. Can you become addicted to cigarettes? Obviously. And the same thing is true with alcohol. But I, you know, I, I think it's about an intellectual consistency thing when it comes to certain substances. And my argument about the kind of the natural dimension of, of marijuana that we're talking about a plant that's dried and smoked akin to tobacco is that I don't believe it ever belonged in the same class as the class one narcotics like heroin and cocaine and crack and meth and these kinds of things, which are deeply, deeply processed. I mean, you, you don't happen upon those in nature. You also don't happen upon spirits and alcohol in nature unless you've got a barrel of old wine that has gone bad or something like that, or you know, some kind of sugar that has, that has gone through the process on its own. And that's not what we're talking about here, right? Well, we're not. And it, so what you have just surfaced with me is how much my reaction to this is driven by an emotive and affective kind of set of anecdotal data as opposed to actual kind of scientific grounding. So I feel mm -hmm. strongly that drugs are bad and I see marijuana as a drug and therefore it I, is. And, yeah, it is. But I, and I, and I have, I have that reaction. Let me say that the Catholic church has a similar emotive non-evidence-based reaction. So let me just give you an example from the catechism. The use of drugs, this is paragraph 2291, the use of drugs inflicts very grave damage on human health and life. Their use, except on strictly therapeutic grounds, is a grave offense. Clandestine production of and trafficking in drugs are scandalous practices. They constitute direct cooperation with evil since they encourage people to practices gravely contrary to the moral law. Now, let me say that you can look at that and think that that is actually saying something concrete. But if you actually dig into what's being said there, drugs are not defined, therapeutic exactly. use is not defined. Exactly. Because alcohol is a drug yeah. and caffeine is a drug. Yeah. You and I are both consuming a drug right now because we're both drinking coffee. Yeah. So let me just sort of get to the point that I'm trying to make here because I recognize that the catechism is not authoritative in the way that some other documents are authoritative. But when Catholics turn to this, they may look at that and say, ah, this means that all use of drugs is bad or what have you. But as I've been talking to Reverend Sharp and as I've been trying to think through this question myself, I have gone back into the deeper documents and I've not found much. There is not a lot of really evidence-based response from the church in terms of these very important societal questions. Well, and I think this brings us back to the two issues you raised. One is the criminalization and the disproportionate effect it's had on historically disenfranchised populations in the U.S., that particularly when it comes to race, white people and African Americans are have different experiences around something like marijuana and who suffers the consequences and incarceration and so forth. And so there is a justice issue at play. Furthermore, I, I, mean, I want to go back to, you made reference to, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, your, your early years and, and so forth, and the anecdotal experiences of pot and, and the potential for it to be retrospectively identified as a gateway drug. But I, I would also point out that in order to really contextualize that, you'd have to Put yourself in 1920s U.S. in relationship to alcohol, that the perspective when it was illegal federally because of a constitutional amendment to produce, to traffic in, to consume, to possess alcohol, there are preconceptions that are assigned to that that affect your emotive standing. And also, as somebody who was a child of the 80s and I was a, a child of the 90s, you know, you have your drug abuse resistance education, McGruff the crime dog, telling you don't do drugs and, and Nancy Reagan saying just don't do it. You know, and, and this kind of stuff. And 
And so I, I understand the kind of emotive response, but to me, I find it to be irrational. I'm not calling you irrational or anybody else. I, I'm just saying that to your point earlier, if we look at the scientific evidence, no one that I recognize from either a civil legal perspective or from a scientific kind of medical perspective is claiming that these things are objectively good because like all substances, including the coffee we're drinking, too much of it is bad. For certain people, it's bad. You know, I, I can go on and on and on all the way down the list. And so the, the catechism, I think you're right to highlight that its vagueness is a problem, actually, because what constitutes a drug? Are we talking about acetaminophen? You know, is Tylenol what we're talking about here? I think also the justice issue that's very important to both of us, and I think is really the most compelling reason why this needs to be a decriminalized substance, and certainly, you know, something that's regulated and, and acceptable for recreational use, which I also think destigmatizes on the one hand, and also demystifies it, so that it doesn't become something that is it's something transgressive and exciting, you know, especially for young people, because it's the stuff that's going on with all the ancillary kind of crime and danger that comes with it. It's now again, like going to the liquor store or, or you know, buying cigarettes or, or cigars or something to that effect. I mean, that's kind of where I, I stand on this. And you're right about there isn't so much faith-based substantive reflections on this. Apart, and I don't know that there should be, because I don't think the church should be commenting in any kind of specific way about caffeine or alcohol or tobacco consumption. But I think the sentiment that's in the heart of the passage you shared does speak to the justice issues that we should be concerned about in terms of Catholic ethics, about disproportionate criminality and incarceration and how, how different categories of drugs and substances have been used to reinscribe those systemic injustices in our society. Well, and just to bring this to a landing with regard to Catholic teaching, if you look at those sections of the catechism that deal specifically with the use of drugs, what you'll notice if you're paying attention is the lack of footnotes. So there's not a grounding in conciliar documents. There's not a grounding in earlier teaching. What is happening here is that USCCB is sort of navigating in new waters, and it's, it's generating these statements without a foundation of other church teachings to draw on. And in that sense, they are reacting to their own affective sentiments, their own feelings about drugs and those sorts of things. And because of that, I mean, I, I really do think that you're, you're right to say that they should be cautious about making very strong pronouncements. They also should be cautious when they make statements like these, you know, these actions are contrary to the moral law because they're invoking that in a way that doesn't have any kind of roots that go down into other conciliar documents to help to ground that. So we have to then ask rightly, is this coming from that very environment, that Nancy Reagan environment of, of that conservative just say no to drugs kind of sentiment, or is it coming from some other source within the Catholic tradition? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's important to realize, too, the catechism, as we generally think about it, is, is a template that came from the CDF in the early 90s, and that there are regional catechisms that do address, you know, the basics of, of Catholic teaching and its structure as applied to a certain context. In the U.S., we have this American catechism that uh, Cardinal Donald Wuerl was the kind of overseer of. And so I'm not really sure what that says. If anything, it probably doesn't. But I think you bring up a good point. And this is where I would say you're not going to find, and this is, again, the challenge why the catechism or the Bible or any kind of 
resource is not simply an answer book. You know, the Code of Canon Law, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they're not answer books for, are drugs good or bad, you know, and then you flip through the index and find an answer. That's not what church teaching on faith and morals is about. Faith and morals is about forming our consciences so that we can go about the world following in the footprints of Jesus Christ as his disciples. And that means that we have to use our prudential judgment, which is a virtue that needs to be honed. It's a habitus. It's something we need to practice. It is something that involves our intellect, our reason, our experience, which are sources for theological reflection. And I think where we point to in the conciliar teaching, the magisterial teaching of the church that's been consistent through its social teaching, which is really what we're talking about here, Catholic social teaching, how it's applied, and and at the heart of it is a matter of justice and it's a matter of common good. And I think that the decriminalization at minimum and the legalization and regulation of a substance like marijuana actually promotes the common good in our society as, as a form of justice minor though it may be, there are lots of injustices. doesn't solve the problems of systemic racism and incarceration and, and new Jim Crow and that sort of thing. But it's, it's a step in the right direction in a little way. But I also think the regulation of this substance is promoting the common good too because it helps bring order to something that isn't inherently destructive. And I think that may be something worth noting, that there's, there are actual, to, the, to reference the catechism again, there are real scientific medically verified therapeutic uses for THC and perhaps CBD, right, for marijuana. We've seen that with legalization of medical marijuana across the board. There is no, there's no therapeutic purpose to crystal meth. So I think these are categorically different things. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that when, whether it's the catechism's language or our general kind of maybe understandably emotive response, when we make claims about drugs, quote unquote, in general, and don't include the whole spectrum including caffeine and alcohol and everything else, then we, then we run the risk of falling into this kind of problem. So I'm really grateful for you raising some of these questions. And, and I always love when we don't always agree on things. I, I hope our listeners do too. So let us know if you, if you like when we go back and forth on this. So I think that's a good place for us to draw this particular discussion to a close. I also am thankful to you for the engagement and the disagreement. And I, I, as always, I learn in these conversations. So we'll certainly, I'm imagining, come back to this question again. But for right now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together and we discuss topics in the news from a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. On January 3rd, the United States military executed an order from President Trump to assassinate General Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds Force, which is the foreign operations branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Not only was Soleimani a military leader and the number two Iranian government official, but he was also a beloved figure within Iran and around the Middle East because of the symbolic role he played as the one who secured Iranian safety. Soleimani's death by drone strike at the Baghdad International Airport has launched a cascade of fury in Iran and beyond, raising questions about retaliation against the United States and the prudence of Trump's decision, a decision declined by both of his predecessors, Presidents Bush and Obama. Soleimani was not a rogue terrorist actor like Osama bin Laden or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the former leader of ISIS, both of whom were also killed by the United States. Soleimani was a high government official of a sovereign nation-state. Millions of Iranians took to the streets to mourn the killing of Soleimani, crying out for action against America in response. 
As of this recording, Iran has launched more than two dozen missiles at American troops in military bases in Iraq in retaliation. It's now unclear what will happen next. Trump is expected to make a statement later today as we're taping this, and in the time between our recording and this episode, a week ago when it's released today, there's bound to be more events. One question on everybody's mind is, what kind of events? Dan, what are we to make of this situation? First, um, I am very, very troubled by this. And, and I imagine everybody who's listening is as well. I'm, I know you are. You know, I keep coming back to two words. And the two words are Archduke Ferdinand. And it is deeply, deeply disturbing that we are just a little more than a century away from a similar kind of thing taking place. And, and, you know, I, I was sharing this with a friend the other day as I think about the Iranian situation right now and the stupidity, frankly, of the decision of President Trump to take this extreme unilateral effort against the advice of security advisors without consultation of our allies, like in NATO, for instance, or our, I'll just say this, I can't imagine the Israelis being in favor of this, given that they're the most immediate targets of potential backlash. God forbid there's a full out war. I just keep thinking back to, you know, all those years in elementary school and high school when you take, you know, American or you take world history class and you learn about the start of World War One, and it's oftentimes distilled. Obviously, it's more complicated. There are lots of other kind of vectors that are coming together and and things bubbling to the surface globally that leads to a a point where the straw that, that breaks the camel's back is this assassination of Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand. But I, I can't help but have this kind of historical deja vu where I'm like, is this not what happened? Like, think about the kind of encroachment of the United States into other parts of the world. I think of Afghanistan and Iraq, I think, is particularly in this part of the world. I think of lots of other global circumstances. I think about the international transgression of sovereignty, like with the hacking around the 2016 election and the Russian interference and so forth. And, you know, now this stuff with the U.S. and Ukraine and and I'm like, is this not, not to be hyperbolic, but I think very really, is this not another kind of Archduke Ferdinand situation that's going to boil over into World War III? David, what do you think? Well, I, I will say, I was saying this morning to Kira, my wife, I said, I feel like we're in World War One, And she says, you don't mean World War Two? And I said, no, no, because World War One was people with puffed up egos who had some slight offenses against one another, and they ended up plunging nations into bloody, horrible battle. And I, it feels reckless in the way that World War I felt reckless. And, you know, the reporting that killing Soleimani was among a range of options presented to President Trump, and it was presented as the extreme outlier to sort of hedge him in to go to some less extreme options, and he just picked the most extreme one on the table— I don't know how accurate that reporting is, but I've heard that from several different reputable sources. And so that alone is incredibly alarming. Like this was simply an off-the-cuff action without thought about the consequences or what was going to come next or what sort of strategy was going to be involved in this. Uh, and if I can respond to that, I, I agree. I've seen very good reporting in The Times and The Post about this. And I, I, there are many layers of frustration. I found myself, I was, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I was like basically losing my mind where I said, I'm, I'm very angry. I'm angry at a lot of people. I'm obviously angry at Donald Trump, but there's part of me that thinks he is ultimately culpable because he has the power. He actually makes the decision, but he is, he's incompetent. 
he is not capable of making a decision. This is case in point. He does not understand the consequences. Whereas even somebody like George W. Bush, for all of his kind of bumbling and his illegal kind of his illegal wars that he started, like in Iraq and the misleading of a nation and the world in that regard, even he understood at least the consequences of this sort of action. So it's it's deeply frustrating. My first point of anger, target of anger, is Donald Trump. But then I think about the fact that he is basically an incompetent, man child who doesn't know and doesn't care to learn about these things. And so then I think back to the, his advisors, the national security advisor and the military who present these menu of options, which is standard protocol to give a whole range of here are the various things we can do. Anyone we, we were nerding out in the end of season five about the West Wing. I mean, anyone who's seen any kind of procedural about the White House knows you go in the situation room. There are the best advisors with the best intelligence. And the president says, what can we do? And they give you a range. That's normal. What I found also disturbing is that when General Jim Mattis was the Secretary of Defense, he instructed the, the team, whoever, the security advisors, to take that off the list, that, that Trump had never seen that in the same way that Obama and Bush had, because he was afraid that, that Trump might actually pick it, you know, inadvertently or foolishly or emotively, like it seems to be the case, as some reporting suggests, too. And, and so now I'm angry at these advisors, and, and I'm angry that there are no adults left in the room. Well, let me go back to the catechism again, and this is paragraph 2308. All citizens and all governments are obliged to work for the avoidance of war. That's a great sentence. The catechism in that same paragraph goes on and says, however, as long as the danger of war persists and there is no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peace efforts have failed. Okay, so that so if I if I simply read the first part of that paragraph, one of my more hawkish trad Catholic listeners may come back and say, "Oh, but you did you left off the the second part. We have a legitimate right of self-defense. We have a legitimate right of self-defense as long as all diplomatic peaceful efforts have failed. This is not an indication at all that we used any diplomatic peaceful efforts. In fact, Trump took diplomatic peaceful efforts with Iran off, off the, the table. table. And that's another point of anger for me, quite frankly, where I'm like, how have we gone in, in four or five years from a landmark, worldwide, very complicated and, 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 and quite unlikely, so we could call it almost miraculous, agreement with Iran? I mean, all of this was to this, you know, it began with Trump's dismantling of this, again, not understanding what the consequences were and listening to talking heads on Fox News that filled his mind with distortions of, you know, world events and, and the way that world dynamics, I would say, global dynamics. I will say, too, that the, the passage that you read from the catechism summarizing that teaching for folks is a, a shorthand allusion to Catholic just war theory. And one thing that's important to realize is that there is, as, as you rightly said, a, a nation state's right to defend itself but this, there's no right for preemptive strikes. This was an argument, again, that was, was surfaced in the early 2000s when President Bush wanted to launch these attacks in Iraq and to, called it you know, preemptive strikes. That is not justified by Catholic teaching. There's no such thing as a preemptive strike. That's an offensive move that's unilateral. It, you know, I, and yet there's been this kind of conflation. Like you said, there are, there are self-identified Catholics. There are potentially listeners. There'll be people who, who will see this and say, well, we need to get them before they get us. And that's not church teaching. There's nothing justified in that. That's not just war. And quite frankly, given 
you know, it's worth noting, too, that there has been no just war in a very, very long time, perhaps before the fourth century, you know, you know, some, some, you know, scholars have pointed out, some uh, ethicists have, have noted that, you know, with the invention of the crossbow, where you have this kind of disproportionate force. And distant force, like you can't, distant you force. can't face the enemy, you're, exactly. you're killing it from a distance. And that's what a drone strike is. Yeah. And so the, there's a lot of pieces here to kind of think about and talk about. One thing that I, I think also, before we get too far past it, I think that there's a lot of confusion about what the Iran nuclear deal did. And I think that Fox News and other pundits have a tendency to oversimplify this. One of the things that I work on in my scholarly pursuits is I work on religious approaches to nuclear nonproliferation. And so the verifiability of a nuclear development process, we know how to do that and we know what to look for and we know how things get hidden. There are telltale signs if you have access. And so one of the things that was very good about that deal was that it allowed us an unprecedented amount of access and we could we could actually look for the telltale signs. Now it's a black box. And and Iran has now said that they don't feel themselves bound by any part of that nuclear deal. That is the worst possible situation when you have no ability to verify and you have you have foreign agents and you have still a large amount of nuclear material unsecured from the breakup of the Soviet Union and from other sources. It's a, it's a witch's brew of possibilities that have now been opened up by an unthinking action. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think, first of all, what's going to happen is that we are what we're seeing is a complete lack of the checks and balances that is talked about in 2308. Don't even think about international checks and balances. We don't have we don't have domestic checks and balances, and the the action of the House and the Senate to try and and check this is been set set into disarray with the attack on the the military base. I don't know that that we have adequate checks and balances right now to halt a massive escalation. I also know that ground spotters have seen not only six B-52 Stratofortresses flying and taking off from bases, we also have four B-1s in the air now. All of these are nuclear capable, which means that we may be seeing a tactical nuclear escalation. I don't know that that's going to happen, but I mean, if Trump has shown that he is willing to do the most extreme thing on the list— that's the most extreme thing on the list as a next thing. If you think about what an escalation is, a tactical nuclear strike against one or two targets on the ground in Iran would be the worst case scenario, but it's not unthinkable right now. That's what's so terrifying. I also, I mean, our listeners, you already know whatever's going on because this this is a week out. Yeah, but you have the advantage of the future yeah, that we so, don't. So hopefully we're, we're far off in, in kind of the speculation, but... You know, who really knows? I think the other thing, too, that, again, the Trump administration is not taking into consideration is that, and again, this goes back to the World War I kind of repeating itself, it's not clear who the allies and the axes will be because from every decision that Trump has made to pull out of international agreements, whether it's the Paris Climate Accord, whether it's the Iran uh, nuclear agreement, whether it's this unilateral action that has global consequences, our European and Middle Eastern and Asian and African and South American allies are not for this. They're not being consulted. There's nothing to say, God forbid, There's this escalates to an atomic you know, war. 
even if it's tactical, you know, isolated in some ways, whatever that means. I mean, if you're dropping a nuclear bomb, it's not isolated. I don't think the rest of the world is they're not going to be on, quote unquote, our side. France is not going to come to support Trump. You're dropping nuclear bombs on Iran. No, that's the end game. I mean, that that's the end game for American power and influence in the world. If we take that step, and we, we so we have a decapitated diplomatic corps right now. We don't have a State Department that functions. We don't have thanks, Rex Tillerson. Yeah, we we don't have in not just in the top positions, but in like the top three positions in key diplomatic areas across the board. We're missing people. And so Trump is acting without adequate information, but he's also acting without any kind of check and balance. Anyone who could, anyone who could step into the fray and actually de-escalate what's going on here. And with that, you know, we've already made kind of a global retreat from anything approaching diplomacy. And if we then turn around and use a nuclear strike capability, even in a limited sense, it's game over for America. We have no credibility anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's pretty low to begin with at this point. I mean, certainly since 2003 with Iraq, I mean, that was really depleted a lot of our, our credibility. But even at that point, George W. Bush was able to persuade with misleadings some of our allies to support us in that, you know, reckless and, and unnecessary war. Yeah, I I think, you know, it's it's frightening I think it's important for us as Catholic Christians, particularly in the U.S., to be in prayer, to be, you know, as you said, we do have constitutional checks and balances. I, I'm very frightened about the fact that what it, what's required now in terms of leadership is for there to be for the sake of the U.S., the sake of the Iran the people, the sake of Israelis, the sake of everybody – it takes a leader at the global level who should be in the office of the president of the United States to be the bigger man or woman and say, you know what, let's, the supreme leader of Iran had to do something because there were the people, literally everybody was outraged about this and the pressure was too extreme. And that would actually be more justifiable, that attack on our military bases, according to the teaching in terms of self-defense. Um, it's it's not really self-defense. It's more retaliatory, retaliatory. And I obviously, I'm in no way actually supporting that, but I'm just saying it's far less egregious than what we did. And I don't, we know Donald Trump does not have the moral capacity or the emotional intelligence to be the bigger person in the room. And I kind of praying that the Supreme Leader, you know, is able to. I mean, what other choice do we have? I don't know what's I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, I'm praying big time. I'm also praying and I I simply want to say to your point about the retaliatory strike, the reporting this morning was that there were no casualties from the attack on the base. That's misleading. There were no American casualties. There were no white casualties. There were there were, Rocky there, there were there were people who were there who were hurt and grievously harmed. And so as a way of kind of drawing this conversation to an end, I just want to again go back into the catechism. The mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes illicit between the warring parties. Non-combatants, wounded soldiers and prisoners must be treated and respected with humanity and treated humanely. So that, I think, is the watchword for us to end on. We're praying for the greater 
moral law to prevail here, that we would see the humanity in those that are not named in the news reports and to recognize that they're not nameless victims. They're people with, with families. They're people with lives. They, they are vital, wonderful, beautiful children of God, and we must be thinking of them and praying for them with the fervency that we're thinking of and praying for Americans and soldiers that supposedly are fighting for our rights and our freedoms, that, that everyone who is on the ground there is a child of God. Amen, brother. And with that, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm still Dan Horan, and I'm here still with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about various things, news, politics, current events, movies, and today, the sacraments. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time each episode to talk about the sacraments of the church. We're kicking it off with the rite of Christian initiation. And in particular, in the West, the first sacrament of the rites of Christian initiation, and that is baptism. As the Catechism reminds us, quoting the Council of Florence, you know, everybody's favorite 15th century ecumenical council, quote, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to the life in the spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments, end quote. David, from our conversations, I know you have a bit of a complex history with your own baptism. So let's begin there. Okay, so for listeners that don't know this, I was raised as an atheist. I was raised in a household that did not profess a faith. Nevertheless, because of family pressure from my mother's parents, I was baptized as an infant. And so I have... Clandestinely? I, I get, yeah, well, I mean, I, I was... They did it to make nice with my mother's parents. And so I have the seal of baptism, but I, but it didn't, it wasn't kind of given any kind of context or any kind of narrative around it. It just was a fact. And it was a fact that I didn't really discover or think about until I got to seminary years later. In between baptism and being raised an atheist and going to seminary, I became a Quaker, and I was a Quaker for 15 years. And Quakers, for listeners that don't know, are non-sacramental. They don't believe in a physical baptism. They don't believe in the physical communion of taking the wafer or the wine or the grape juice or the crackers. They do this kind of on a spiritual level, but there is no physical action involved. So the fact that I was physically baptized for part of my blossoming religious experience had no connection at all to my religious faith as a Quaker. It was only when I began exploring Catholicism, that this became an important question. And then I had to go back and find the documents of my baptism, and I had to I had to basically kind of reconstruct the circumstances of that so that I could demonstrate to the Church that I was sort of licitly brought into the Christian faith, even though it wasn't in a Catholic Church. So there's a lot there for us. So it was a non-Catholic baptism. I'm Catholic. That's okay. There's yeah. no such thing as a Catholic baptism. So say more. So let's start there. Yeah. Why is there no such thing as a Catholic baptism? Because there's only a baptism into the body of Christ as Christian. And so the this is interesting because there are certain denominations. You mentioned your experience as a Quaker. You know, the, the kind of quick go-to in um, in the U.S. context is the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They understand themselves to be kind of Christian denomination, and they recognize the Old and New Testaments as, as sacred scripture alongside two other texts, the Book of Mormon. And the rest of the Christian community, including the Catholic Church, does not recognize Mormon baptism. There, there are a couple reasons for that. This goes back to the Middle Ages. And the scholastic distinction informed by Aristotelian philosophy about matter and form. Every sacrament has matter and form. 
And in the case of baptism, it is flowing water uh, is the matter. And the kind of, you got to either through submersion or through pouring, there has to be flowing water. It can't just be like, you know, like, you know a droplet or something on somebody's head. There has to be water. And it's the invocation of the triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It has to be Trinity. And the Mormons do not baptize that way. They have a bunch of different understandings of what they call baptism, including baptizing the dead posthumously and all this kind of stuff. So when I say there's no such thing as Catholic baptism, what I mean is that the Catholic Church incorporates through baptism, the sacrament of baptism, an individual, whether an infant or an adult or a child, into the body of Christ. In, and we recognize baptism in that way in any other Christian denomination. Now, here's the other thing, too. Baptism is a sacrament that can be celebrated validly, if not always licitly, and I can say more about that, too, but it's a valid baptism if one Christian baptizes another, and that person intends to baptize, uses water, and baptizes the person in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a valid baptism. So there are things like emergency baptisms, and you hear about this, nurses and ICUs and that well, kind of thing. My, my wife, Kira, was a hospital chaplain for a number of years while I was finishing graduate school, and she worked in the NICU, and she she tells stories of performing emergency baptisms for for infants that were soon to die, and in fact did die. Now, you can't baptize the dead. That's right. There's a law, there's a church law against that, but you can... You... Well, there's, yeah, there's a church law, but there's a theological grounding. You yeah. You, yeah, but we can get into that, too. <laughs> I mean, there's no Christian denomination would baptize the dead. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But that's that's a maybe that's a shiny object we can follow and discuss in a minute. But just just to give a near example that that she did perform the sacrament of baptism and it was recognized. I mean she she can't walk into most circumstances and perform a baptism, but in those extreme circumstances she was able to. Right, and that's the distinction, and, and it'll come up probably, well maybe not as much in in the first the future segments of of, of the Francis Effect this season when we talk about sacraments. But it's it's important here maybe for me to reiterate the difference between from the Catholic perspective, what's called lucidity and validity. And so validity means it is legit. It happens. It's real. And so Kira, by virtue of her being a baptized Christian, can, if she intends to and, you know, intends to baptize somebody else, and normally there is this openness, right? You can't celebrate a sacrament under duress, but with an infant, you know, they can't themselves exercise agency and consent. You can assume it in a way. And certainly their parents who are the guardians or, or agents here in this case, it, it asked Kira for this. Yes. You know, she's not going around just baptizing babies willy-nilly. No. That would not be good. Um, but so in those circumstances, it's valid because all that's required to baptize another is that you are a baptized Christian and that you use water and you profess the Trinity, right? You baptize the person in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's valid. What you were in, in indicating a moment ago is that she's not the ordinary minister in the Catholic Church for baptism. That raises questions of licidity. Is it licit or illicit? You can have a valid sacrament that's illicit. Actually, we will talk about this probably later on when we talk about yeah. ordination, for instance. Yeah, and the Donatist controversy and exactly. all that. Yeah, exactly. But in the, in the short term, you know, before we nerd out too much with our jargon for our listeners, is that, you know, that's, that's the basic, who is the minister of the sacrament? Any baptized Christian, which is interesting. So, you know, the ordinary ministers in the Catholic Church are deacons, priests, bishops. But that's because they're the ordinary ministers of all the sacraments. But there, you don't have to be ordained to validly baptize. So that's, that's an interesting thing about that sacrament. So let me ask you now another question. What do Catholics believe 
actually happens ah, when someone is baptized. Waiting for this, yes. Because you notice, listeners, we've been talking for a good eight minutes, and no one's talked about sin. That has not come up. David didn't mention it. I haven't said anything about it. We were talking about babies in the NICU. But it's interesting, if you were to ask somebody, why do you need to baptize somebody, you know, you'll probably get a range of answers. I mean, I think part of the cultural, uh, I'll just stick to the Catholic Church because that's our, you know, our kind of purview. You know, I think there's a cultural presumption and cultural concern about baptism is admission into heaven. And, and there's a whole host of reasons why that's problematic, certainly uh, following the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and, and looking at Scripture and God's intention that all be saved and so forth. But I think if you dig deeper into that, the ticket to admission to heaven has something to do with original sin. And this is where modern concerns around infant baptism or babies who are, are near death in the NICU, for instance, and this sort of thing surfaces. And it's a very sensitive and very controversial and painful sort of conversation. And it comes again down to this notion that all human beings, by virtue of being human, when we enter into this world, we're affected by uh, the reality of original sin. And one of the things that is true about the celebration of the sacrament of baptism is that it's set, it's, it's understood that we are, quote, freed from the bondage of original sin. Now, I usually spend many weeks in theological anthropology talking about what that means. So we don't have time here on this segment, but but just a signal that the church is not specific about how it how we arrive at that. That's an open question theologically. You know, Augustine in the fourth century, who's really the kind of first to formulize a a clear conception of original sin, a clear kind of framework for it. Though he's not the first to talk about the reality of original sin, that goes way back to the early church. He understood a kind of almost quasi-genetic or biological passing on, almost like like your genes get passed on from parents. That's not, you don't need to maintain that. The, the key thing is that by virtue of being human, we're affected by this reality of original sin. Baptism, through baptism, we're freed from the bondage of that. But as Augustine says, as, and as we experience in the world, we still suffer the consequences or effects of original sin. And the way that Augustine talked about that was how it impacts our free will. That God gives us the gift of free will, but we it's almost like, um, you know, you break your leg, you have a cast, you're healed. That's kind of the act of baptism, but you still have arthritis in the wintertime. You know, you still have the effects of that broken bone, even if you're still able to exercise on it and use it. Similarly with our free will, and this is a bit of a sloppy metaphor there, but I hope it carries the point across, is that we still suffer the consequences of original sin, but we're freed from, from it as such. That has, you know, certainly over the last 800 years dominated the Catholic imagination about the necessary purpose of baptism. And, and that is certainly a part of it. It's one of the effects of baptism is this freedom from original sin. However, it's not the primary purpose of baptism. And we've already addressed the primary purpose of baptism in your sharing your own narrative and in talking about just the language we've been using, but that's because we're two theologians. And as St. Paul says, the primary purpose of baptism is incorporation into the body of Christ. So let me pick up from there and see if I've, if I've gotten what you've said. So we have a common understanding in sort of popular Christianity, popular Catholicism, that there's some kind of genetic disorder that gets passed down to us that's called original sin. 
But if I'm hearing you correctly, if we're incorporated into the body of Christ through baptism, one of the things that if we could think about a consequence of original sin, it's feeling like we're isolated and we're separated and that we are alone in the universe. One of the things that being incorporated into the body of Christ does is it shows us who our family is, and it brings us into... Think about this with regard to the woman with the flow of blood who touched Jesus. He didn't just heal her body. He healed her back into the social community. He, he allowed her back in from exclusion. And so if we think about baptism as being a, a way of bringing someone in from kind of cosmic exclusion, then things flow from that. And it, it does, you don't have to think about the physical effects. You can think about the, the social, the familial effects. Yeah, it's even more than that, though. Tell me more. Yeah, so it's, it, it's it, theologically what we're talking about is, is sharing life in a new way, sharing Christ's life, the life of the Trinity, the divine life in a new way. So, you know, one of the things that the church teaches is that all of us, by virtue of being created, are in relationship with God, and that God as Spirit is given to the world as grace, and grace is all around us. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Ruach Elohim of the, of the Old Testament. And so we all have a relationship to God. What baptism does is change that relationship in a way. It shifts our relationship. There's a way in which St. Paul, you know, a modern kind of translation of one of the ways he talks about baptism is talking about being knitted to Christ— and so, you know, I, I, I kind of like your image of the familial, the, the kind of the relationships we have, the kind of visible, and that's true, but it's more than that because baptism is tied to our doctrine of the communion of saints, which we profess alongside baptism in the creed. And the communion of saints says that we're bound together. This is a beautiful reiteration of Lumen Gentium that appears in Eucharistic Prayer 3. So listen for it sometimes, where if, if the celebrant is using Eucharistic Prayer 3, you hear that gathered throughout the world, though we are, by the Holy Spirit. So we're scattered throughout the world. We're gathered together, united in the Spirit, is, is the point. And that's what baptism does. It binds us to one another in the Holy Spirit and to Christ in this particular way, a new way, renewed way, sharing the life of the Trinity. So there's there's a kind of, it's it's more than physical isolation or participation in a visible community. It also connects us to all those who've been baptized before us, all those who've been yet to be born and baptized into the future. It's what unites us through this world into the next, you know, so that those that we have relationships with, those who have also been baptized that are unknown to us personally, we're, we're bound to as well. And so it's so much more than just admission, the price of admission or a right of admission into being at this church community on Sunday. I'm not sure, I don't think that's what you were saying, but some people might think of it that way. So they're like, oh, so there's this, the old language of stain of original sin. It, it cleans off the stain of original sin. And then it's like, then we can go to church and now you can call yourself a Christian or something like, oh, it's more than that. It's so deeply situated. So, you know, I don't mean basic the way the millennials use basic, but it's such a basic fundamental aspect, which is why the catechism says it's the door which gives access to the other sacraments, not because of the cursus honorum, this idea that you got to do this to get to this to get to that, that, you know, it's a, it's a progression or a ladder, but rather it opens the door because it is, it is the foundation for life in Christ, life in the spirit, life in community that transcends the physical world, geographic boundaries, identities, races, sexes, genders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to say this in a slightly different way, because I love what you just gave me. My children are 10 and 8, and we have a lot of conversations around the house 
about the difference between someone who is a friend of our family and someone who is friendly towards our family. So we deal with a salesperson. We deal with someone who is an acquaintance. And my, my children very naturally want to share a lot of personal information because I'm being polite to them and they're being polite to me. And they, they think, oh, that means that they're our friend. And so we've had a lot of conversations that sometimes people, even though they, we're being polite to one another, there's a, there's a step that needs to be taken where you move from being friendly to being friends. There's this wonderful point in John 15 in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but now I call you my friends. And I think that one of the things that we're talking about in baptism is this moment where we are included in the social community of friendship with one another and with Christ in a very profound way by the act of baptism. Yeah, there's a Greek word for that too. It goes back to the New Testament and it's exactly, I mean, it builds exactly on what you're saying. This friendship, the bonds of friendship with Christ are more than just acquaintances and, and likable friends and classmates and that sort of stuff. It is koinonia in Greek. It is communion. It's deeper than even the bonds of family, which is why Jesus talks about a new kinship. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? You know, who are my siblings? This kind of thing. And it's the one who does the Father's will. But that Participation in this new kinship, this new koinonia, communion, community, fraternity, sorority, as it were, this bond is signified and made possible through baptism. It's interesting, There, if I may, just as, a, as an aside, I was at Sunday after Christmas, I was at a parish with some friends visiting, so I was uh, not celebrating the, 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 I wasn't the celebrant or presider of that liturgy. And so it's always interesting to kind of be in the congregation, which is kind of nice, a nice turn of table. Um, and it happened to be a day in which two babies were baptized in the celebration of the Eucharist. And I was pointing out that it's one of the unique liturgical moments. There were only two times in, the, in, in liturgy where you don't begin with the sign of the cross. You don't begin with the normal introductory rites of the liturgy. And that's baptism and funerals. And both of those bookends of our life in the Catholic Church, because not everybody is baptized as an infant, but most Catholics are, is that it takes place at the front door of the church where you are welcomed. The church itself becomes a symbol, that physical space becomes a symbol for the theological and spiritual reality of the church, which is the body of Christ, which is all the baptized. And so you greet the family at the door. You don't begin with the sign of the cross. The presider says, what is it that you ask for your child? And the, the parents say, baptism, what name do you give this child? And the name is proclaimed. And the priest says, and I mark you now for Christ with the sign of your faith. And I invite your parents and godparents to do the same. And he makes the sign of the cross on the infant's forehead. And then they, they come in. And during the celebration of the baptism, the rite of baptism within the Eucharist, just like you would have it outside of the Eucharist, you have the water, you have the, the candle, the Paschal candle from which your baptismal candle is lit, you have the white garment. And what you have at the door of the, of, of the chapel or of the church when somebody is celebrating the rite of Christian burial is that the priest again and the ministers and the community and the family greet the body of our sister or brother at the door. The name of the person is announced again. They're sprinkled with holy water. They are clothed with the white garment of baptism with the funeral pall. And the paschal candle, the light of Christ that they received at baptism, is placed right before them at the front of the church where their body is brought in by the assembly, their brothers and sisters who are united to them in baptism as the communion of saints, accompanies their sister or brother in this final earthly journey 
to the light of Christ again, where the celebration of the Eucharist takes place. The sign of the cross, the normal penitential act, does not take place in the funeral liturgy. I'm, I, I'm having an emotional response to what you just said, because I, I feel so strongly the organic way that the Church is thinking about the community, and what, if we pay attention, we're being shown again and again and again how obligated we are to one another in the bonds of Christ, and how deep those bonds go. And for me, I mean, we in this in this particular episode, we've talked about kind of the decriminalization of drugs and the breakdown of community around that. We've talked about war and the breakdown of community around that. And I think again and again about what our obligation is as Christians to one another and how we are, if we could simply focus on the light of Christ, as you just said, how much our behavior would change towards one another, not just to our neighbors who we see, but to our neighbors whom we don't see, and how deep those friendships could blossom and grow if we were able to simply see each other the way that God wants us to, the way that God sees us. And it, I, I'm, I'm having a real strong reaction here because what you're talking about in both of these cases liturgically is an act of welcome to the outsiders, and that that's profound for me. Well, and as a community, you know, that— you know, all the baptized, there's so much more to say about it. I know we kind of, we're running out of time here, but, you know, it's it's something that the church teaches. We see in Lumen Gentium, the church's constitution on the church. We see it reiterated in the teachings of Pope Francis, his recent exhortations and cyclical as well, that all the baptized have a vocation to holiness. And holiness isn't personal, individual, siloed piety. Holiness is about actualizing the will of God and supporting and loving one another and building each other up and working to kind of exercise our Christian call in the world wherever we find ourselves. And I think baptism is not just a ritual of admission. It's not just a price of admission or a process of initiation in the kind of colloquial sense. It is something so much more profound, and that's why I bring up the the funeral liturgy, because the language that the, the when the minister, the priest greets the deceased body and the community at the doorway, evoking how that person entered into the body of Christ through the celebration of the sacrament of baptism, the priest says, in the waters of baptism, our sister or brother died with Christ, and we believe that this person is now participating in, in the life of Christ's resurrection. And to me, it's just, it, it is the bookends of what matters. And like you said, we've talked about a lot of really difficult things, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. If we could just keep in mind the little things like that, and here's, here's a little challenge. It's for me, it's for you, it's for all of our listeners, particularly those of you who are Catholic Christians. You know, next time you walk into the church and you, out of habit, dip your fingers into that baptismal font or the little cup of water, that holy water, and make the sign of the cross, the reason that's there is to remind you of your baptism every time you walk in and walk out of that space. It's a reminder that the church is more than this physical church that you enter in and out of. You're supposed to call to mind how you're united to one another in Christ, something we'll talk about as well more when we get to the, when we talk about the Eucharist, which is also a part of the rite of initiation. Wow. Well, there's a lot more to say, and like I said, we'll be taking up one sacrament apiece through each of the episodes of this season of The Francis Effect. But I'm so thankful for you, Dan, for going deep on this question today and on all these questions, and it's just great to be back with you again. Igualmente, hermano. (laughs) 
The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you can also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have five seasons of shows you can go back and explore. But for right now, thank you for listening. <laughs>